Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior. Blessed Assurance is a song that you are probably quite familiar with. Maybe you're new to church and it's new to you, but this is one of the songs that people have sung for 100 years, more. Blessed Assurance was written by Fanny Crosby. Uh, She's a well-known hymn writer. She wrote around, well, they're not exactly sure, somewhere around 8,000 or more songs hymns that were sung by many people all over the world, songs such as To God Be the Glory, or The Old Rugged Cross, or Take the World and Give Me Jesus, even Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior. And that just names just a few of her great songs. Now, Fanny was born a healthy child in 1820, but at six weeks old, she contracted a weird um, eye inflammation of some kind, And a kindly physician came to try to help her, and he either botched something up or was unable to prevent what was happening. But as a result, Fanny was blind, blinded, and was no longer able to see. And so she grew up blind. And if anyone could have felt bitter about their circumstances, about their lot in life, it would have been her. And yet, somehow, she came to understand her blindness as something that God had used, not only for her good, but for the good of countless others, even for our good here now in 2021. She saw her blindness in a way that was centered in trust centered in the grace and the goodness of the God who loved her dearly. So much so that later, in her autobiography, she wrote that if she'd ever met, been able to meet the doctor that had blinded her 
as a baby or at least had been unable to prevent her blindness, she would have thanked him for it. Can you believe that? Here she is in her own words from her autobiography. Listen to this. She said, It seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life, and I thank him for the dispensation. I was born with a pair of as good eyes as any baby ever owned, but when I was six weeks of age, a slight touch of inflammation came upon them, and they were put under the care of a physician. What he did to them, or what happened in spite of him, I do not know, but it resulted in their permanent destruction so far as seeing is concerned, and I was doomed to blindness all the rest of my earthly existence. I have heard that this physician never ceased expressing his regret at the occurrence and that it was one of the sorrows of his life. But if I could meet him now, I would say, thank you, thank you, over and over again for making me blind. If that was through your agency that it came about. That sounds strangely to you, reader? Fanny asks. But I assure you, I I mean it. Every word of it. And if perfectly earthly sight were offered to me tomorrow, I would not accept it. Did you ever know of a blind person talking like this before? Why would I not have that doctor's mistake, if mistake it was, remedied? Well, there are many reasons, and I will tell you some of them. One is that I know, although it may have been a blunder on the physician's part, it was no mistake of God's. I verily believe that it was his intention that I should live my days in physical darkness, so as to be better prepared to sing his praises and incite others to do so as well. I could not have written thousands of hymns, many of which, if you will pardon me for repeating it, are sung all over the world if I had been hindered by the distractions of seeing all the interesting and beautiful objects that would have been presented to my notice. Another reason is that while I am deprived of many splendid sights, which, as mentioned above, might draw me away from the principal work of my life, I have also been spared seeing of a great many unpleasant things. The merciful God has put his hand over my eyes and shut out from me the sight of many instances of cruelty and bitter unkindness and misfortune that I would not have been able to relieve and must simply have suffered in seeing. I am content with what I can know of life through the four senses I possess, practically unimpaired at 83 years of age. Hearing, tasting, smelling, and feeling are still felt in their fullest degree. So says Fanny Crosby in her autobiography. Now, I hear Fanny's story here, and I am humbled by it. Are you? My question is, can we be that confident in God's goodness? Can we be so convinced that God will use even the most difficult circumstances in our lives for our good? We can I think we must. And that's where we're going today. We're continuing in our series, Living from the Center, exploring Romans 8 and how it sets us up to really grip who God is, what he's done for us in Jesus, 
what he's doing in us now by the Holy Spirit in a way that centers our very lives. And over the last few weeks, we've been exploring in particular how suffering works in our lives, the, the role that suffering plays. A few weeks ago, we talked about suffering well and understanding our suffering in terms of a share in Christ's suffering and how um, we're called to compare what's now with what's next and see what's now in light of what's next. And last week, we were encouraged to, I think, explore and accept the fact that the Spirit doesn't shame us for our weakness, but rather the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The, the Holy Spirit, who is within the life of every believer, is actually groaning within us and interceding for us on our behalf. And today, the theme of suffering continues for one more week as we're encouraged to trust in God's ever-resourceful, always faithful, never-failing goodness as he takes even the worst things in our lives and turns them for our best. Would you pray with me as we continue into Romans 8? Holy Spirit of God, I ask that you would help us today look and see you in the midst of our difficult circumstances. I pray that you would grow our trust today in your goodness. Especially for those of us who are struggling in the midst of some difficult times, that we would look to you and trust you today. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we begin today with a really well-known verse of Scripture. It's a, it's a passage of Scripture that is often quoted and has been so encouraging to so many people in so many scenarios. Romans 8, 28. A lot of you probably have it memorized. It follows directly on the truth that we're told that the Holy Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And then we pick up in verse 28. Here it is. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. We know this, Paul says. God causes everything to work together for the good. The good of those who love God. We're going to unpack this a bit today. But before we do, I I want this truth to ring out clear. That we have a God who's able to take anything and everything from our lives that's going on around us. The heartaches, the disappointments, the pain, the shame, the betrayal, the loss. He's able to take the pushback and the persecution. He's able to catch up the mundane, the the, the hurtful parts of our lives, as well as the joyous and beautiful moments. Anything and everything in our lives, God is able to take it all up and work it together for the good. For the good. The good of his people. The good of you. And I think there's somebody today who needs to hear this truth. Somebody is listening. It could be you. Who needs to know this because you've been ready to give up. You've been trying. 
You've been holding on. You've been hoping for some kind of shift, some kind of change, some kind of relief, and it's not coming. And it doesn't seem like it's going to. And you've been thinking that you can't go on and you just need to give up. In fact, in the middle of it all, you've even started to believe some lies about God. Can he really be trusted? Is he really that good? Lies about yourself. Am I really loved by God? Am I really his child after all? Lies which are beginning to crowd out the truth that God is always good, always faithful, always resourceful. The truth that you, in Christ Jesus, are condemnation-free. You are a spirit-led child of the Father, that the very Spirit of God is groaning within you and praying for you even now. And that's all been getting drowned out. And today, you need to hear this if you hear nothing else. God is good. God is trustworthy. God is for you. For your good. And what's more, God is so incredibly resourceful that he's using every shred of shame. He's weaving every piece of pain. He's catching up every smattering of suffering and mixing in every single bit of hurt that you've ever experienced it. And he is turning it for your good. It's incredible. And I want you to hear that. If you hear nothing else today, God has committed his whole self to accomplishing your good. Hear it. Hold that. Trust him and don't give up. The truth of Romans 8.28 is very, very powerful. But in order for us to fully live from this center, we need to examine some of our own expectations that we carry around what exactly is the good. You see, while we love to quote Romans 8.28, we have to be careful to let God define for us the good. Because when we think of what is good, good for us, good for our kids, good for our marriage, we will often have a long list, but really short sight. We don't see all that God is doing. And that's why it's critical that we move on in Romans 8, that we read further, that we see what comes next, that we put Romans 8.28 in this larger context so we can understand the good that God is working. The good which is often not quite what we thought it would be, and it's often not what we immediately want. For example, we might think that it's for our good that we have a happy marriage that we be healed of this mental illness or be freed of this physical sickness. We could think it's obviously the good that I find a better job, that I have more friends, that I have more money (laughs) or attain a better level of comfort or security or even go on that holiday or relieve some of that stress, finally get a few things my way have eyes that work. And you know what? It might be. But it also might not be. Why? Because 
We don't like to hear this. I understand. The very good that God wants to accomplish in our lives is bigger than what you and I can see. It's bigger than what you and I could imagine. And that good that God is committed to accomplishing is often only accomplished through the very circumstances that you and I would wish the most to change. That's just true. Which is why we have to submit ourselves to God's goodness. We have to entrust ourselves to God's God's goal for us and to center our lives in the fact that He is doing something in us and for us that's bigger than we could ever imagine. So what's the good that God is working everything out to create? Well, let's read the whole passage now, Romans 8, 28 to 30, so we can get a clearer picture of the good. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. For God knew His people in advance, and He chose them to become like His Son, so that His Son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, He called them to come to Him. And having called them, He gave them right standing with Himself. And having given them right standing, He gave them his glory. What's God's good for us? Three things emerge. First, the good for us is becoming like Jesus. Our good is becoming like Jesus. Paul's very eager that we understand that God's goal for us has never changed is that we would be transformed into the very character and image of Jesus Christ, His Son, that our lives, the ways that we live in relationships, the ways that we reach out, the ways that we serve, our very hearts and attitudes and expressions and words would quite literally mimic Jesus Himself. That we would be flourishing as images of God, fully human, fully ourselves, and looking just like His Son, Jesus filled with the Spirit of God to the exaltation of Jesus himself. How does this help us? How does knowing that this is the good, becoming like Jesus, how does this help us? Well, because when we understand that the greatest good in our lives, the greatest good that God wants for you and me, is that we will become more like Jesus, that that's the goal, we will view the very difficulties and hardships of our lives through a very different lens. We will begin to see that the difficulties we experience are not in the way of God's work, but that these very difficulties might be the way God is working. Do you see the difference? We will begin to respond to hardship and suffering by turning to God and letting Him use these very difficulties to bring us to a greater place of love. to to a greater degree of patience, to a greater experience of his joy, so that the character of Jesus Christ is being formed in us, even in the hardship. Let me use an example. Some people find themselves in marriages that are very difficult. Some of you 
are in marriages that are very difficult. And we live in a world that says, if your marriage is difficult, then you should abandon it because it's God's will for you to be happy. Now, I don't want to minimize the sorrow that takes place in many marriages. But we do not find anywhere in Scripture, and certainly not here in Romans 8, that it's God's will for you to be happy. What we do find is that it's God's will for you to become like Jesus, which you can do in a difficult marriage just as easily as being in a healthy marriage. In fact, you could almost argue that it might actually help you more in a difficult marriage because there'll be challenges there that others don't face. Now, I want to issue an important qualifier here. I'm not talking about a marriage that's abusive. I'm not talking about unfaithfulness. Listen, if you're in a dangerous situation, if you're in an abusive situation, get out, get safe, and get help. I just want you to hear that. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a marriage that just isn't good anymore. Isn't supportive anymore. And you feel unloved. And you feel lonely. And you feel unwanted. Here's the thing. By the grace and the resourcefulness of God, He's able to use even your difficult marriage to help you become more like Jesus. I say this without minimizing the sorrow and the hurt. The reality is learning to turn to Jesus with your unmet needs. You will find a home in God's heart, a home that you were never meant to find in the heart of a spouse. Learning to let your less than stellar marriage point you again and again and again to the faithful love of God for us his bride, the church, that will grow you. And in the very difficulties that we experience daily, learning to guard our tongue, growing in the spiritual fruit of self-control, learning to love sacrificially the way that Christ loved the church, learning to serve without an expectation of return, just as Jesus loved and served us. These are all ways that God will use a difficult marriage to grow us into more and more people like his son. On that note, I want to recommend a great book to you. It's called An Impossible Marriage by Matt and Lori Krieg. This is an incredible story of, quite literally, an impossible marriage that I know will challenge not only people who are married, but also people who are single. Because um, I say that and you think, what? No. If you read this book, you will be so challenged to become more like Christ. And so I recommend it to each and every, every one of you. Listen, it's God's will for us to become like Jesus. It's God's will for you to take more confidence that he will use anything and everything to accomplish that goal. He's that resourceful. Well, so first good is that we are becoming like Jesus. Second, our good is right standing with God. Paul goes on to great, great length here to assure us that God's planned this out all 
along. This has been God's desire. And he's emphasizing how we've been known and chosen and called into this place of right standing. He's doing all this so we are confident that God is going to work this out. He's committed to this a long time ago, long before we were around. He's committed to bringing this about. And this right standing with God that Paul's talking about here is really shorthand for much of what Paul's already been teaching in Romans all that God was doing through Abraham, through the people of Israel, all that God had done in Jesus Christ, all that God was doing now by the Holy Spirit, it all leads here. That this was God's plan all the way along. What we discover is that God doesn't want kids who cower. God wants children who stand. Not cowering before him, but standing with him. Bold and belonging. Humble and yet completely at home in the presence of their Father. That's what it means to be condemnation-free, which we explored earlier. This means that God is going to use our very circumstances, everything, everything that's going on, to deepen our understanding of His grace and the faithfulness of His love toward us, so that as we learn, as we grow, as we experience, we will stand taller and taller and taller as His confident kids. Let me use another example. Some of you are struggling to forgive someone who's hurt you. Or maybe to forgive someone who hurt somebody else and you've taken it on. God is very eager to use this experience that you've had of hurt. This struggle with unforgiveness. He's very eager to use it to deepen your experience of his grace, so that you can not only come to a place of forgiving that person, but so that you, through this, can be even more confident in your standing with God. We pray the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Right? Well, the fact is, as we obediently forgive, God uses that very hurt and that very pain for our good so that we will learn, we will grow, we will appreciate and deepen and just sink into God's forgiveness and love for us, discovering more and more and more our right standing with Him as condemnation-free kids. That's God's good for us, right standing with Him. Third, our good is a share in God's glory. What's the share that Paul's referring to? Well, glory, as Paul's been using it in Romans, most often directly refers to the coming consummation. When Jesus comes to set the world right again, when evil and death are finally and completely destroyed, when heaven and earth are recreated and rejoined, when we are raised in new resurrection bodies. And that's what all this means. That's where all this is going. It's what all creation is groaning for. It's what we ourselves are groaning for. It's what the Holy Spirit who's been praying and interceding for us, it's what he's groaning for too. And so we're being reminded again here that what's now, what's difficult, what's hard, all the stuff of our life that's all being employed by God to bring about what's next, which is a share in God's glory. And we discover that God will not waste one single tear. He will not overlook one solitary loss. 
He will not disregard even one little piece without turning it for our good, which is a share in God's glory. This is amazing. This should hearten us, even in the difficulty. But you know, this glory isn't just located in a distant future. Paul is also eager to constantly remind us all through his writings that we have a share in this glory now by the gift of God's Holy Spirit given to us. God's Holy Spirit comes into our lives and he's called a variety of things. A foretaste of what's to come. A deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. The first fruit of the greater resurrection that's coming. God takes the future glory and plants it within us now. It's why Paul says in another one of his letters that anyone who's in Christ is now a new creation because the Holy Spirit has taken new creation that's coming and planted it now. A little bit of heaven is already here and is growing in us. Our share in God's glory begins now, and what's coming is just going to take it to the max. Now, it's important, I think, to issue a little bit of a theological qualification here. All of this talk about how God will use resourcefully the difficult things that are going in our lives doesn't mean we need to move to some sort of weird theological determinism where we begin to call evil things good because God can turn them to good? No. The Bible is consistent. Jesus is consistent. We are against what is evil. We speak out against suffering and the wrong that's being done against other people's lives. We resist evil and death. We love and we serve in the face of suffering. And we stand against the things that destroy people's lives. That is just true. But it doesn't mean that God isn't able to still do something with the evil and with the suffering. God is like the ultimate judo master. He takes what evil intends to do and he flips it on his head and uses it against death itself. That's what he did on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, exactly what he did. He took the evil that was intended and flipped it for our salvation. So we don't need to adopt some sort of weird determinism. But we do need to trust in God's goodness. So even when we cry out to God to change the situation, which the Scripture tells us we can do, but, and, and we, we, we fight against evil and we try to make a change, which also Scripture tells us what to do, there's still going to be times in our lives where it seems like things are not changing. And in those moments, we can be reminded that God is able to use even this for his good. He is just that good. He is just that resourceful. However, I also want to note there are way too many stories told by friends and saints, particularly as they've looked back on hardship in their lives. Way too many of them have looked back like Fanny and said, you know, now that I can see what God has done, I am thankful for what happened. I am thankful for something that looked terrible, that looked evil, that looked wrong. I am thankful for blindness even. Because through that, I came to a place I would never have been otherwise. I came to know the love of God in a way that I never would have understood it before. I came to minister to these people that, you know, people that I never would have been able to minister. I came to a whole new place of, of understanding God's grace and His love that I never would have been without this sorrow 
and the suffering. And so looking back, they begin to see how God has used it for their good. And friends, I think what those kind of testimonies offer us is just a taste of the kind of testimonies that we'll be hearing for all eternity. Because when we really get the full picture, when we are in resurrection bodies and we're looking back on this few short years that we have, we will be thanking God for eternity to come for the way that he took evil and used it for our good. Like Joseph with his brothers, what you intended for evil, God made for salvation. This is how good God is. Where does this leave us today? I think it leaves us in a place of settled trust in the resourcefulness of God that he's so faithful he'll take anything, anything, and he'll use it for our good. Let me offer you two application questions as we close today. First of all, as you consider where you are today, what you have been experiencing, a place of pain and suffering, a place of difficulty, let me ask you this. How is God calling you to trust him more fully in that place of pain? And I invite you now, wherever you are, to hold out your hands. And in your hands, imagine the person or the pain, or the situation, the struggle, or the stress, whatever it is that you have been experiencing. And maybe it's multiple things. Maybe you've got to put your arms around it. But I want you to hold out your hands and simply say, God, I trust in your goodness that you will use even this for my Holy Spirit, I ask right now that for those holding out their hands right here, right now, that you would minister to them, that by your Spirit, you would deepen their trust in your goodness, that you are going to take this thing, these circumstances, these difficulties, and in a way that we can't even imagine, you are going to use them for our good. We praise you and thank you for your willingness to do just this for us. Amen. That's the first question. The second one is, what's one way that you can partner with God in his good for you? We've examined these goods and how how it's becoming more like Jesus and, and, and various things we explored. But there's a way that we can partner. There's a way the Holy Spirit invites us to partner with his work. Perhaps it's submitting to his will. Perhaps it's obeying the command to forgive. Perhaps it's accepting um, somebody that's difficult in your life and realizing that this person is in my life so that I can learn how to love like Christ loves me. Maybe maybe the way to participate more fully is, is through a greater attitude of joy and thanksgiving. We're told to consider it all joy when we experience trials, and that could be the invitation for you. But I want you to ask, what is one way 
that you can partner with God in the work that He's doing even now for your good. I encourage you to take that and pray about it, journal about it, but also talk about it. I hope you, by now, have someone you're walking with in spiritual friendship. I encourage you to to talk to them about it. And if you haven't taken that step of finding a, a specific spiritual friend that you can connect with regularly to talk about your walk with Christ, well, this is a great opportunity. This week, I encourage you to call somebody, email someone, message someone. Hey, can we go for coffee? Can we go for a walk? And begin to initiate this kind of conversation, how you're partnering with God in the good that He's working in your life. Listen, whatever might be happening, my hope is that you can sing the great song that Fanny herself wrote for us. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Jesus, you are worthy of our praise, and we offer it to you. Thank you for being a God so committed to our good. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.